40 Futures is a speculative fiction series about the criminal justice system, written and read by Jason Taché. Chipped. James looked down at his trembling left hand. There were burns on his wrist. The doctor, continuing the examination, moved his shackles to better assess his swollen ankles and feet. How's it to walk right now? asked the doctor. Shaky. It, it doesn't feel right, James responded, even when I'm not chained up. Taking a second to look at his wrist, the doctor took a step back. It's lithium poisoning. James was visibly skeptical. You seem confident for not taking any blood or anything. I can take blood, but it's just going to tell me that you've got lithium pumping around in you, she said. I keep seeing this. It's that cheap embed tech the Department of Corrections requires. The batteries leak. James looked at his arm and then back at the doctor. So what can I do about it? It's killing me, right? Well, the good news is, is that you'll most likely recover. The tremor, the swelling, the burn, it'll all heal up once we remove the problem, which we're going to do now. She reached for an alcohol pad and a scalpel. The bad news, however, is that I have to insert a new one in your other wrist. Fingers crossed this one isn't garbage. Wait, so you're just going to set me up to be back here in a month? His face was sour. It's the law, James. She paused. Plus, how are you going to buy your Funyuns at the commissary or keep up with your remote medical evals without it? Didn't you take some oath or something? All the indignities of incarceration left James agitated. Do no harm? Well, I'm removing the harm and there's a 9 in 10 chance you won't be back here, the doctor jocularly spat back. So give me your wrist. Welcome back to 40 Futures. I am Jason Taché, and this is the penultimate episode, the second to the last episode of this first volume of 40 Futures, and I appreciate you hanging on with me to the end. We've got one more after this, which is a personal favorite of mine, and it'll be out next week. Today with the commentary, I'm hoping to do something a little bit different, where I'm going to briefly talk about kind of the how do we get there question, which will be answered pretty quickly in a second. I wanted to take this particular story, and I placed it at the end specifically, to take a 30,000-foot view of this project itself and pull at a couple of different issues that I have been thinking about as I have put it together. So the first is going to be about how this story really illustrates the core challenge with this particular project. The second is the banality to how we get to these terrible futures that I have been writing about. And then the third is to draw out the kind of the biggest takeaway that I have had during this project, which is that as much as these are future stories, we already exist within uh, a dystopia. And I don't think at this point, in my point of view, that that is a controversial statement. And I'll be curious to hear people's thoughts on whether or not they agree or not. To jump in first, I placed this story where it was because this story to me illustrated the core challenge of this project, which is I had to stay ahead of 
all of the bad things that are happening within the criminal justice system and technology just enough to make sure that these things were still fiction. And this particular story kind of fell through the cracks of my first round of research when I built this project. What I mean by that is that we have been chipping or putting RFID signals on prisoners in the United States since the beginning of the century. This is not a fictional piece in the sense that I initially thought it was when I was writing it. Now, some of the features of the chip within the story are different than what we have now, but at a minimum, chipping prisoners to make sure you can track their location is done. Starting in the early 2000s, prisons started with a wristband-like approach that would track people through an RFID chip, which is the same type of technology that is in your tap credit card, for example, or if you have an easy pass to go on toll roads on the East Coast, then you know and you use RFID technology. So this has been around. We know it's been around. It's been used in the UK and the US to be able to track prisoners. And so we know that this is already happening. And that's kind of insane because I've been following these topics now for a decade and never once in any of the research, any of the interviews that I've done, has this issue come up in any of the conversations that I have had. And that to me is kind of the subversiveness of the moment that we live in with all of this particular technology, which gets to the second point None of these projects, none of the things that are happening now, none of the stories that I tell in this particular volume are brought around because people want a dystopia or that they're acting with malice and moving us towards a particular future that may be darker, uh, but one that they still aspire to. And I think that that's really important to think about. It's like none of these stories that I write about, and this is only a conclusion I came to later as I was thinking about this collection are paved with malice, right? Like the road to get to any of these particular futures, none of them are paved with malice. They are, in the worst case scenarios, you know, criminals using available consumer technology to do criminal things, and that is bad. We shouldn't be promoting people to commit crimes, but the road that we got there wasn't because people wanted to make society worse. And I think that's really important. A lot of these stories really come out of arguments around improved public safety. They come out around improved government efficiency or government modernization. And then mission creep sets in. And the story drive-by, if you want to go back and listen to it, really talks about this mission creep idea of where a technology starts and where it evolves to can look radically different. And we don't give much consideration to what those increased risks or harms look like when it's a part of an evolution of a project as opposed to treating each evolutionary step as a new project that would require new due diligence, new thoughtful analysis, new considerations to the human rights and societal costs or harms that would be created by a step in that evolution. And I actually think 
the role of chipping prisoners within the United States and the story itself really illustrate that. If we look back 20 years ago in 2004, they're putting wristbands with RFID chips on prisoners to be able to track both staff and and prisoners within a facility. Uh, And then we get into the last decade and all of a sudden the technology is smaller. You can chip people as you would a pet, which is its own disconcerting comparison. And the discussion at the corrections level, at the policy level, begins like every time there was a jail breakout, which are super rare, but every time there was one, and there's an article about this in the show notes, is that somebody somewhere would say, well, we should be chipping these people. So if they are able to get out, we are able to follow them. And that comes from a knee-jerky, but somewhat legitimate, if we're being fair public safety concern like if someone breaks out of a prison they're a violent known criminal then you you want to be able to find that person to to diminish any risk to the community at large i get how somebody gets there however the broader implications of that one just like the idea of chipping everybody because once a decade someone escapes seems like an overreaction, but a lot of the policies that we see, a lot of the adoptions of technology are not due to systemic problems within a particular agency or part of the justice system. They tend to be really knee-jerk reactions to these exceptional but rare occurrences that happen, like a jailbreak. I think that is another takeaway from this particular series is that I don't think one day we wake up and all of a sudden the technological infrastructure of the criminal justice system looks in a way that we can draw direct comparisons to to 1984 and wonder what the hell went wrong. I think instead we are frogs in a pot that are slowly being boiled in this regard, which then takes me to what for me personally was the biggest conclusion I took away from writing these stories. And it actually happened early on in the process. So this project was never supposed to be a a short form fiction project. The project was going to be 41 sentence provocations about how technology could change the criminal justice system in the coming years. So I wrote out that list of 40 and I shared it with a friend of mine. And he sent his, his feedback when he sent it back was 10 of these things are already happening. A full 25% of what I thought were creative, original ideas were things that already occurred within the status quo. And these were things like creating back channels within prisons so inmates could challenge their algorithmic risk assessments about them that were keeping them away from parole. This was happening in New York. It was about police altering a photo from a crime scene or a mugshot to make sure that a match was more likely. This occurred in Portland, Oregon, not too long ago, just a few years ago. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the news and this article popped up about this crowdsourced vigilante public safety app. And it was about how it was going to partner with a couple of different police departments in the United States. And... One of the 40-sentence provocations that did originally make the cut last year was basically this idea, is that in as public trust in institutions falls, including the police, then people will be looking for police-like services through different venues. And so the idea for that particular story was that an app 
would provide basically Uber for Pinkerton private security services so people could call in dispatches into their neighborhoods while circumventing the police themselves, which of course is going to have all sorts of negative implications and and the lack of public over if we think the lack of public oversight of police is bad now just wait until people begin to rely on private security services instead of of public institutions and so that really puts me in a place where it's hard to see how we are not already in a dystopia the conversation around dystopia or dark futures tends to pretend as if it is trouble ahead as opposed to assessing the moment that we already currently live in and this project forced that into focus for me these are not conversations about what is around the corner these stories are meant to illustrate that the building blocks that we have now are already a problem. And as those building blocks, whether they're technologies, ethics, policy, or just human nature, begin to interlock in new ways, then we are compounding the dystopia that we are already in. We are not creating a new one. And I hope, if anything, that is a takeaway that people who are following this project uh, may also see. And I'll be very curious to know if if that is the case or if I've gone entirely tin hatty during uh, the pandemic and, and the time I've spent working on this particular project. But that that's the takeaway for me, is that we're in a dystopia. And not to leave this on an entirely sour note, I don't think that the conclusion that we live in a dystopia now is itself a terminally cynical place to wind up. I think if anything else, it's actually empowering to acknowledge that that is the reality that we currently inhabit and that now we can do something with it, right? Like the first thing about fixing a problem is acknowledging what the shape of that problem is. And I think in some degrees, I have a better sense of that now than I did before. It's no longer about staving off things from the future as the policy prescription or or the direction advocacy needs to take, but rather we need to simultaneously be working on bringing up the rear things that we have decided to pass us in the past 20 or 30 years as far as oversight of government agencies or certain technologies is concerned, while also thinking about what is around the corner and being proactive about that in the first story in this series, I talked about how Chile has passed a neurological data right, basically a right to privacy for your neurological data in their new constitution, which is the type of proactive thinking that we need to have when talking about where we're headed as a country, both in regards to technology's role in the justice system, but also in society at large. But simultaneously in the U.S., we need to be thinking about things that we should have dealt with years ago, like data privacy laws, which we still don't have a comprehensive version of in the United States. And so I think that's that's where I wind up with this particular project, is that we're in a dystopia, and now we need to figure out how we get the hell out. And we can do that. I don't think that the institutions are broken to the point that is not possible. However, it's going to take work. It is going to take time. It's probably going to take sacrifices. There is a lot of vested interest 
especially economic vested interest in the way that things function now that would have to change. And that is probably where the fight is going to lie. And with that, I will leave it there. Thank you as always for listening to 40 Futures. For links to what I talked about today, check out justicetech.download. That is the URL. This is a project written, recorded, and produced by me, Jason Taché. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back in your feed next Thursday. Until then, take care.